On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, join the studio to have a quick look through this morning's papers by Philip Ryan, who's the group political editor uh, for the Irish and Sun the Independent, and also making her debut in the programme, Dr. Rachel Iredale, who's a consulting director of RSM Ireland and a public affairs consultant in Ireland and the UK. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in. Um, the front pages, um, as usual, fairly varied, uh, which is maybe a bit of a running theme, but no harm. Uh, we'll start with the business post because it seems to have um, a little bit of a scoop. New British protocol law to remove all customs checks uh, is their lead story this morning. Uh, new legislation is to be introduced in the British Parliament this week, which will give ministers powers to remove all customs processes between Britain and Northern Ireland, remove the oversight of the European Court of Justice and allow businesses in the north to choose whether they want to follow British or EU regulations. Uh, Boris Johnson's government is expected to publish the new piece of legislation giving ministers the power to effectively disapply parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol tomorrow. Now, officials in the British Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs have already written to agri-food businesses in Northern Ireland and Britain, stating that the aim of the new legislation is to restore the balance of the protocol. And DEFRA officials in that letter say the new legislation will give British ministers the power to remove all customs processes for goods moving within the United Kingdom, enable the frictionless movement of agri-food goods remaining within the UK, allow businesses to choose whether to follow either UK or EU regulations, safeguard the continuity of supply of medicines into Northern Ireland and fix, quote, the unacceptable situation where people in Northern Ireland can't benefit from the same tax benefits as everyone else uh, in the UK. Uh, responding to the details obtained by the Business Post, a spokesperson for Simon Coveney said, we haven't seen the detail of the UK bill, but it goes without saying that breaking international law would be a retrograde step for the UK. Uh, as you'll have heard uh, in Tina's news bulletin a couple of moments ago, Brandon Lewis, uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has been doing the rounds in British media this morning and says that it doesn't break international law, uh, which is novel because the last time they tried to do anything like this, uh, again, he was the minister at the time and he confirmed that it would in fact break international national law, albeit in a fairly narrow way. Uh, We'll come back to all of that in just a couple of minutes' time. Also on the front page of the Business Post, the government is examining the reintroduction of the rainy day fund in the budget. God, there's there's an old idea reanimated. The rainy day fund in the budget could be used to store the record corporate tax receipts, uh, which has been repeatedly warned cannot be, continue to be depended upon. And also a series of companies and small businesses are now buying up homes across the country in a bid to make sure that their own workers can access accommodation due to acute labour and rental shortages. Several companies have spoken to the Business Post on condition of anonymity, but they've described how they've acquired quite significant portfolios of homes, uh, which they're either renting to employees at subsidised rates or allowing them to live in for free as part of a benefits package to attract workers. All of this apparently because those companies are now realising they're finding it harder to attract workers to Dublin and generally to Ireland in general uh, because of the difficulty getting accommodation. Um, on that note, it is worth noting that there's a property around Google's headquarters uh, somewhere in Dublin 4 um, and they've called it Google Docs, as in D-O-C-K-S. Um, you know, the, the, the both the product and the, the land area, uh, which is used as an accommodation stash for visiting workers who are mobile and often tend to work across uh, multiple countries at a time. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times. Sinn Féin sourced to record uh, match high in the polls. Uh, Sinn Féin has matched its best ever results in a Sunday Times behaviour and attitudes poll, rising one point to 37% as the coalition reaches its two-year anniversary. The June poll consolidates the four-point bounce the party enjoyed last month following the Northern Ireland Assembly ratings. And Mary Lou Macdonald now has a personal satisfaction rating of 52%, which means that she is also uh, the most popular party leader, uh, which was a previous mantle held uh, by the Taoiseach Micheál Martin. Um, also on the front 
page of the Sunday Times, the principal of a Wexford primary school who was sacked in 2015 for inflating pupil numbers in an attempt to retain its quota of teachers must be given his job back, the Labour Court has ruled. And also we learn from John Mooney that an international gang of fraudsters has been running a cryptocurrency scam from Dublin, generating tens of millions for its operations who are thought to be Eastern European criminals. Front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, the budget is still four months away, but we're already into uh, row season. So, uh, you know, brace yourselves. Um, the government is facing its first major row ahead of the budget over the extent of social welfare increases to meet the cost of living. Fine Gael wants to link welfare uh, transfers such as the state pension to average earnings rather than the rate of inflation to control the cost. But Fianna Fáil's former social protect spokesman, Willie O'Dea, yesterday said that such an approach was not honest or credible. It's the first salvo in what's expected to be an intense clash this summer between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil over intended measures to tackle the spiralling cost of living. And the front page of the Mail on Sunday, Gardaí and exploited workers probe raid meat, uh, probe raid a meat plant. Gardaí have raided a major meat factory at the centre of the Irish Mail on Sunday investigation into the exploitation of migrant workers. An operation this week involving more than 40 officers from multiple agencies identified substantial numbers of illegal workers as Garda officers swooped and seized documents, computers and cars on site. And what's very interesting is that the identities of more than 50 of the plant's 150 workers whose immigration papers did not appear to be in order during the raid are now being checked and verified by Garda detectives. The idea that one in three workers in meat plants, after everything that we've discussed in meat plants over the last two years, uh, that one in three might be there on some slightly non-legal basis uh, I think quite striking um, that is your tour of the front pages of, of what's in the morning's papers as I said uh, Philip Ryan and Rachel Iredale with me in studio um, we might start with um, everything going on protocol wise um, not a huge amount to be gleaned other than uh, that front page story uh, in the business post um, but Philip uh, the British government once again saying that you can do all of this without breaking international law that you can somehow amend a treaty between two bodies uh, unilaterally without breaking that law Yeah look this conflict goes on and on and it, it's interesting to see the details of how they feel that this would work where there would be you can pick and choose whether what regulations you go for if you if mm. you felt like it that that's the one that stuck out for me that you could be bringing a I don't know some some meat product into the Northern Ireland and you decide well for this one I want my lasagnas to be EU rules and mm. I want my uh, sausage rolls to be UK rules and it, it's just like it it stands to reason that something like that couldn't work because it's, it's the meat products way of having your cake and eating it yeah exactly yeah and it probably it will apply to cakes as well but it <laughs> but it's it, this this is the problem with it, it that, that you can lay it bare here they're saying this is all very reasonable I I don't see in this one does it talk about um, the European court court rulings and where, how that would have been brought into it. Mm. The, the, there doesn't seem to be details on that because they, yeah. they also want to subvent that as well in yeah, their, in their that, that's one of the more sensitive aspects of the protocol yeah. that it still means that the European oh sorry it does say they removed the oversight of the, yeah. yeah so that's but but, look, but I mean how, how that you know conf- uh, mm. isn't a conflict of international law if the protocol is supposed to be governed or interpreted exactly, by someone yeah. that's surely the European Court of Justice so of course, yeah. if you remove its jurisdiction then if you mm. have a dispute and you send it to the courts then the court ruling apparently has no yeah. meaning in the place that it's supposed to apply yeah, which that's it. I think the other story that's kind of significant on the protocol, which is going to be big this week, is is Simon Coveney in, in the Sunday Independent mm. speaking to, to Hugh O'Connell, in, in which he, he ratchets it up a little bit, bit more than usual and tries and makes it quite personal, his comments, in saying that Liz Truss is essentially... Um, who we know has been put forward did this protocol she's developing this protocol mm. are these um, to get it, the, the, the loopholes or the way to get around the protocol issues that, that even Boris Johnson thinks she's going too far so Liz Tr- or 
Simon Coveney is suggesting that she is doing this because it's part of a leadership bid which seems to, to go beyond the Irish government's stance of we shouldn't interfere in local politics. Yeah, uh, Simon Coveney telling the Sunday Independent that he doesn't know if Miss Truss is positioning herself to try and replace Boris Johnson, of course, who's quite vulnerable after the week that he's had. But he says mm. people can judge for themselves the division and tensions within the British government and leadership challenge, which was closer than expected. In some ways, it has reinforced the concerns we have that the positioning around the protocol is more about the leadership of the Conservative Party and who is Prime Minister than it is an effort to actually solve problems in Northern Ireland linked to the disruption of Brexit. Um, Rachel Ardell, you uh, were resident in Britain for uh, the time of the referendum and for a lot of the time afterwards. Um, Do you think there might be some truth to Simon Coveney's assertion that they don't really care so much about what's going on in this island but rather care about which of them gets to occupy particular seats around the Cabinet table? I think a lot of British MPs are more concerned about what's happening in Britain than in in England in Northern Ireland to tell you the truth mm. I lived in Wales situation very different um, going to be interesting to see over the coming months what's going to happen nationalism I think particularly in Wales and in Scotland in the mm. S- SNP the Welsh nationalism th- really yes indeed I think particularly at the football I have Welsh flags yeah. up in my house for example my children are Welsh yeah. so that's interesting <laughs> but the bizarre thing to think about is the, the protocol was a jointly agreed by the EU and um Uh, the UK Mm. as part of the withdrawal agreement and I think as Philip said it's a kind of a pick and mix approach now to what you want to follow and what you are deciding to abandon. Um, I think the the statements by Simon Coveney particularly interesting and I don't know whether you heard from Keir Starmer during the week who really put the issues of trust and yeah. uh, uh, politicians being honest brokers at the heart yeah. of the debate and that's something that's really problematic What was actually ours. quite fascinating about uh, Keir Starmer because I got the chance to speak to him for a couple of minutes to get a, a clip for TV uh, for Virgin Media mm-hmm. News and uh, it was very striking that in all the different media appearances he gave an interview to the Irish Times he spoke to uh, RTE TV he spoke to RTE Radio mm-hmm. spoke to ourselves and he made that point over and over and over again and then went to Northern Ireland and spoke to their media and made that same point again that this can all be solved if there's goodwill and honest brokering but he doesn't think Boris Johnson is you know almost personally has the personality to be capable of that. You have to remember he's a barrister by background so the notion of the rule of law being sacrosanct Mm. to him and people being able to bend the law at will is is something that he's found really problematic I think. Uh, Just because you happen to mention it this is a total tangent now but um, Welsh nationalism and with the World Cup coming up this is a point that was made by Vincent O'Toole in yesterday's Times as well that there there isn't much of a there's always a, a strain of of nationalism in Wales but this idea that the World Cup coming up and Wales getting to take her place among the footballing nations of the earth might actually cause them to to think about a bit more of a splinter with England. Possibly, I think so. Scotland are likely to have a referendum on independence certainly within the next five years. I would say um, devolved government. The first minister is a Labour government, so very different to um, you know English politics and Wales as a country. The social problems that they experience the deprivation they are acute and wanting to do things about those themselves I think um, is going to be quite different the First Minister of Wales is um, Professor Mark Drakeford so Mm. he would be very much around using evidence evaluation evidence to make policies uh, and in a very thorough methodical way that you don't kind of get the sense that Boris Johnson uses that sort of approach to to, to make Mm. uh, policy decisions Why do you think it's nationalism has never taken off to the same degree in Wales having lived there as it has done obviously Northern Ireland is a totally distinct thing but that hasn't taken off in Wales the same way as it has in Scotland is it just a 
historical thing that they don't have this kind mm. of this ancient mm. history of being their own self-governing place? I think I would say it hasn't taken off politically, but it certainly has culturally. So the okay. Welsh language, very, very strong. The idea of, you know, Welsh poetry, music, song, all of that, mm. very, very deeply embedded into what the Welsh mm. psyche. I would have thought, yeah, that, that yeah. Wales has more of a yeah. cultural uh, difference yeah. to to England than Scotland mm. does because Scotland doesn't really have a huge amount of well, you can argue that it's, yeah, it's language, well. but also like it's history that it has mm. this kind of whole yeah. you know William Wallace but in the idea same, or like you're saying Queen the languages use yeah. there's different like the mm. signs are in Welsh aren't they and yeah. like you don't yeah. have signs in Scotland maybe I'm wrong do you in the Scotland? criminal no. justice system mm. is the criminal justice system of England and Wales yeah. whereas mm. the Scottish system is different the Scottish educational system is different mm. so they are m- more deeply embedded mm. legally. Uh, with England than Scotland would yeah. be. It's a fascinating actually byproduct that if you think about when the next British election might be, whether it's going to be sooner or later, mm. that, that the, a possible change of government might actually make the difference mm. in, uh, you know, you could argue that Labour might be more hospitable to a second referendum in, in Scotland, but it might also yeah. maybe put the cork in, in Welsh nationalism if the government in Westminster looks a little bit more yeah. like, like the one you have in Cardiff. Um, I looked at some know. data on that actually after the vote of no confidence with Boris Johnson about other prime ministers and how long it took before they actually went mm. after a both vote of no confidence. So uh, Theresa May was seven months in 2018. Margaret Thatcher, if you go back to 1989, she was 11 months after her first vote of no confidence. But then yeah. in 1990, she had to resign straight away. John Major, for example, in 1995, lasted two years. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I distinctly remember a Taoiseach uh, having a motion of no confidence voted upon themselves in very very early 2011 and surviving it and saying right that's that done now I'm staying in charge and resigning four days later uh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it yeah. doesn't always manage to put the court <laughs> yeah. back in the tube in the way that it does but on that uh, Philip uh, about Boris Johnson mm. one would have thought that the the result on Monday and 41% of his own MPs the large number uh, wanting rid of the man You'd think that it might have kind of set and trained this whole thing. And yet for the rest of the week, it doesn't really seem like anything much has happened to destabilise him any further. But I wonder, Mm. is that because he hasn't actually tried to do anything? And that maybe publishing a fairly contentious piece of law that's trying Mm. to to disapply parts of the protocol might be the first thing that ends up, you know, bringing him back into the crosshairs of his own backbenchers. Well, I think it was at the SNP or was it the one of the Welsh parties actually that uh, suggested putting down a motion of confidence in the the House of Parliament. Mm. And, it was and the Liberal Democrats. Was it the Liberal yeah. Democrats? Yeah, the sorry. forgotten opposition party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if they, if that that had got through, or if if that's to take place, that would make people, uh, you know, show their hands and no more secret yeah. ballots. And would and a similar thing could happen when this new legislation comes down before the House. Will he have the numbers? Will people? I know. Like, look, mm. he he essentially will have the numbers because there's plenty of people in the Tory Party who are, yeah, Brexit fanatics who may also be, you know. Mm wouldn't be crazy about Boris Johnson but want this this put through so they can stop um, mm. the EU having any upper hand. I'd seen some theories doing the rounds this week and I think they might have been briefed to uh, our colleagues north of the border some of the political media there that the reason of the delay was that Boris Johnson didn't want to publish a bill until he was absolutely sure there were the votes in Parliament to get it through. That the mm. last thing he wanted to do was a repeat of the Theresa mm. May aspect sure. of publishing mm. something to do with Brexit and mm. trying desperately to bludgeon mm. it through and the support not being there and weakening mm. yourself by attempting a vote mm. if you didn't know you had the votes already there. Plus it's going to take at least a year for that. If the le- if he lays the legislation tomorrow, it'll take at least a year for it to go through. You just wonder, is he kicking the ball into the long grass? You know, he knows all these things. The whole notion of this, you know, bumbling politician mm. are so far removed from kind of the strategies that 
Well, it's part of the negotiations as well yeah. to be able to hang that threat over yeah. the EU while you're in the talks as well that you mm. can look at. You mm. don't give us what we want. We'll just do mm. it anyway. Uh, you, you think it would take as long as a year? Do it you is, think that there's I, a sense of a political imperative that they might like to just no, bulldoze it through? I think if you read anything from any lawyer or any academic, they're saying that's kind of the minimum that it would take. Okay. Yeah. Uh, text to 53106. One listener says that Wales was settled by a lot of English people who would never want to leave the UK. And maybe that's the key difference between Wales and Scotland. Whereas a lot of the, the native population in Scotland would still maybe want to secede that there are enough English people in Wales who might resist any sense of Welsh breakaway. That's an interesting point. Something yeah. I'll reflect on. Uh, <laughs> do keep your reflections on the, the future of the UK coming, its constitutional yeah. status uh, and, and the protocol and everything else coming in. We'll wait to see exactly what is in that legislation uh, when it's published by Liz Trust tomorrow. Uh, but like you say, Philip, very fascinating that Simon Coveney is now um, basically willing to call a spade a spade and say that all of this is about the internal machinations of the party rather than any kind of maybe an honest approach at, at trying to, to settle all this out. Um, 11.23. Speaking of um, Ukrainian refugees, however... There's a fascinating piece on page five today of the Sunday Independent, which is about a charity which helped to evacuate 90 children from Ukraine to Mayo and which is now facing the prospect of a bill of €120,000 per month to accommodate the children because the state has refused to cover the costs. Uh, the charity is called Candle, by Gra- Candle of Grace uh, and its founder is Lily Luzan, who's with us on the line. Uh, Lily, thank you for speaking to us. Uh, explain to us, first of all, how you got involved in bringing 90 children from Ukraine to Mayo. Well, we're working with the Chernobyl region for the number of years, and uh, good morning, sorry. And we are working uh, with the Vankiv district in Ukraine, and as you know, this district was occupied, and uh, the children had to stay 45 days in the basements, and just to explain to you that staying in the basements is just eight children staying in a box where potatoes were kept with no food, no water, and they were drinking like melting snow, and they were eating seeds, which was supposed to be for chicken. And this was 45 days of a nightmare. And uh, there was no phone connection. We lost connection with them on the second week of the war. And uh, we were trying uh, to find out how they are every day. Every day we were calling. And our charity is supporting uh, orphanages and schools not only in this region, but uh, in the other regions of Ukraine, uh, mostly Chernobyl area. So as soon as the connection was back, the appeal was to help uh, children to get rehabilitation, rehabilitation from Chernobyl because the land was bombed and polluted, and this is all known Mm -hmm. all over the world, and uh, to rehabilitate them from the stress of the war. So we got in contact with the Mayo County Council and Mayo County Council uh, supported this humanitarian mission and provided accommodation for them. And we brought them to Ireland. Everything was, uh, all the paperwork was done very quickly because of terms of emergency as uh, there was a danger of another attack. And at the minute, they are surrounded again by the machinery, by the army. They are bombed again. And parents are calling us every day and they are thanking us and they are uh, they're looking uh, for the long stay, but we promised them only three months as uh, we have to see what, what happens sure. next, what happens next and how, how the area will be. Like We even get, uh, we even get information that uh, that area might be wiped out and uh, in terms of Chernobyl, you know, it's not safe for them to be there mm-hmm. and in terms of war, of course, as well. We have children, like I have a boy, he's staying with me. His house was bombed, his brother is imprisoned, it was his 10th birthday, um, two days ago, and he just said to me, my first birthday in Ireland, and all he wanted to know his wish was 
for the war to be over and for his brother to come back home. And every child has such a story behind. So we're doing our best here for them to for them to settle, for them to get peace. They have peace. They have they have provided different activities. Uh, we're trying to distract them from the news from home. But yes, accommodation is a problem yeah. because and, and, and co- yeah, and, and accommodation then is is where all, all of this gets a bit complicated because, um, as you say, you, you'd been working with Mayo County Council to find accommodation for these children, but and no, Mayo County, Council, Mayo County Council found accommodation without us. It was okay. found prior our trip. Okay. it was found prior. So it was all done over your head. We had the sureness. We had the sureness that when children are here, they're going to them B and Bs, and then host families are. Uh, our host families are still in the process of the paperwork. Okay. We have the minute. Torty accommodated, and uh, today uh, we have uh, four children are going to host families today. Host families are very happy; they were looking for it, and it's not that you know we needed time for them to get known each other. We needed time for them, uh, you see, to, to feel comfort, uh, to go to see the families they're going to, and the families to see them. So our host families were first volunteering with them, and now they're ready. They know who, which children yeah. they're taking. They love each other, and children are. They're crying of happiness. They're very, mm. very happy to go to these host families. And sure. I have to say that but, we're blessed with our host families. Yeah. Uh, but but the process here is quite important. So, as you've clarified there, so Mayo County Council agreed to, to take care of all the accommodation stuff. It wasn't like you yes, had to go yes, to them. Yes, Mayo County Council yeah, said, we, we will we will find hotels for these people. Yes, and they've they now been told... Before, yeah. yeah, and they've now been told that because that wasn't done as part of the central process run by the Department of Children in Dublin, that the department is not going to cover the cost. So so the County yes. Council did that thinking that the government would give them the money back. Yes, and, and we th- were quite sure as well, we were quite sure that everything sorted because we were quite sure if Mayo County Council is accommodating other refugees, you know, they they were coming before and coming after. Mm. So we were quite sure that everything is in order. Uh, so then but what, what reason has the Department of Children given for, for not covering the Council's costs? They're just saying that... Uh, because of arrangements we made be between Mayo County Council and ourselves, we have to look after this with Mayo County Council ourselves, which is, you know, this is shocking because we're talking about children and we're talking about their, you know, safety. And uh, I have to say that they they don't want to be moved to any other accommodation as they get used to the premises, they get used to people, they get used to volunteers. They're really, really happy over there. Any like there was a there was an option last week to transfer twenty to the community center and I even didn't know how to announce it and uh, all of them said they said no, we're staying here, we're not going anywhere. Mm. They started crying and I just said no. We're not putting okay. them into any further stress because they had enough of stress. They had enough of stress while traveling here. It was very dangerous because their roads were mined and uh, the road was bombed a week before one of the main roads. So they had to change the route. It was very, very dangerous. So they came here and they found safety. They found peace. They're happy. So we're just appealing for them to be kept yeah. in this peace and in this safety. So if the, the if the department says it's not going to cover the cost of the hotel and the hotels, it says in, in the Sunday Independent, I don't know whether this is correct, but it says that the costs for, for accommodating them are around €30,000 per week. Um, does that mean that it's then going to fall to the council to cover that or, or is your charity itself going to have to put that bill? No, all, all the bills are coming to the Mayor County Council and we are, Mayor County Council is, uh, like we, we we didn't, like we're negotiating with the Department of Children, we, we, we sent emails to all the TDs, we sent emails to different departments so, and um, we're hoping that Mayor County Council is doing the same. I didn't get any, they didn't furnish me yet with any Improvement, uh, how how it was arranged arranged before our arrival, as we were just assured 
before our arrival that accommodation is there for them. And as well in our meetings, we're asking for the, uh, when children go to host families, we're asking for one accommodation to be kept uh, for as long as needed because, you know, sometimes and teachers will be staying there because sometimes mm. maybe child is not settling in the family. So we would need like for the child to go back to the teachers, to the sure. legal guardian, and uh, just to be, you know, safe and to be happy. And we were asking for this option, and this option was granted to us as well. So I just presume, yes, uh, maybe the mistake was done by Mayo County Council and yeah. the arrangements weren't right. But at the minute, at the minute, we're appealing to the government just to look at this point that these are children and they're happy in here and they found peace in here. And if we're helping here to so many people, if we're helping to 33,000 already, and Kendall of Grace were bringing people here to Ireland from the bombed houses of Ukraine and our own cost, and we were accommodating them, and we were schooling them, teaching them English, uh, providing them psychological support. Everything was done without the help of government because mm-hmm. we knew how, how hard it is on their shoulders. Sure. So now at the minute, we're just like, you know, children are saying to me, like, uh, shall we go somewhere and protest? Like teenagers as I said the other day, and I said, no, we won't. We'll be hoping and praying that wise men in the Irish government will just look at this from the other point of view, and they will understand that you came from the very, very dangerous area, and they will understand that it's not safe for you to go back yet, because we can't be sending them back yet. You know, I would do this tomorrow. Yeah. But who, you know, how will we all feel if they kill tomorrow? We will say, okay, we had a chance to save their lives, but we didn't do anything for this. And I'm just hoping and praying that somebody wise, somebody wise over there will just take a biro and make one signature and everything will be sorted. Because we're not asking, you know, we're not asking for the long term. We're not asking even the food we can, I'm bringing food to them every day. Every day I'm on the road from 9 till 12 midnight. I'm bringing them food. We're going somewhere with them. We're drawing with them. Mm-hmm. Today they went like they already went to schools. They already signed for the summer camps. Yeah. Today they went, for example, to the soccer club, Newport Soccer Club. Welcome them, mm-hmm. and they're very happy. You see, they are very happy, and yeah. we have to be proud. That they're uh, here and they're happy. I just think it's extraordinary that you started off by telling us that these children had been living in, in basements only eating chicken seeds for 45 days and, and now they've come to Ireland and they've managed to find some sense of peace and now they're finding themselves maybe having to protest at the government because of the, the state of the accommodation or the the the, the um, funding for the accommodation that they're in. Um, Lily, I, ho- I hope it works out for you. We'll keep in touch with you and we'll see uh, how all this progresses but hopefully there is um, some satisfactory conclusion to all of that. That is Lily Luzan who's the founder of uh, Candle of Grace which now finds itself at the centre of a fairly significant uh, dispute between the government and Mayo County Council over who is going to pay for the housing of Ukrainian refugees. Um, Philip Ryan and Rachel Iredale are still with me in studio. Um, Philip, I, I know it's a kind of an isolated example and it might be a little bit of an outlier, but it does illustrate, as has been mentioned today on page five of the Sunday Independent, just how complicated this whole process of finding and paying for accommodation for Ukrainian refugees is becoming. Mm, and uh, l- like you say, I doubt, you say that there could be an isolated incident, but I'm sure... There's so many different experiences of the, is it more than 30,000 people who've come here? I'm not sure what the latest figures are um, who've come here. They've come here from like the conditions you hear that are heartbreaking. When yeah. you, the, the situation those children were in beforehand, like you say, eating chicken feed. And, yeah. and it was a melted snow for water. Like Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is the situation. But when they come here, like, look, everybody's not being given a, a their own front door house. The people are being mm. have been they have to live. It's not even that they're being forced. That that this is all that's available to live in. To kind of makeshift camps in old schools and convents and things like that. 
And look, it's not it's not sustainable in the long run. No one wants to live like that. No one wants four people to have to live like that. But at the short term, it, it's look, these solutions are, are what's on offer. This idea with the money thing, and that seems like something that should be just fixed within the next day or two, really, yeah. shouldn't it? Like, it's, some of the state well, is like, going to pay for it. It's yeah, just which arm that, does that it? The, the idea that there has to be some kind of national procurement uh, vehicle mm. or, or that there, there's complaints that this wasn't done inside a national procurement vehicle when this is this is a an accommodation crisis. This is all hands to the pump and the government is asking people to take stuff in and, and have been taking people in for free and now Rachel a dispute about I, who's going to foot the bill. I think it reveals the harsh reality of the lack of coordination around processes sometimes. sometimes. And whilst you could hear the emotion and the sentiment in, in Lily's uh, voice and, you know, how desperately she cares for this. Having these things happen in isolation without coordination, without people talking to each other means yeah. that, you know, we're just firefighting. You know, we have to be uh, you know proactive in planning how these things are going to happen so that it, uh, something equitable happens mm. for everybody going forward. It is very difficult to be uh, proactive, I suppose, though, yeah. when, when, when there is, it is a crisis mm. and you're basically told with a couple of weeks notice that you might have to accommodate mm. up to 100,000 people or more. So uh, you can understand the how... The grand scheme of things as well, 100... Twenty thousand isn't uh, uh, oh, oh every month. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, and and if it sounds like they're, they're all happy where they are and they don't want to be moved on, then you can understand mm. how how there's maybe some anxieties mm. in in some parts. But we'll wait to see how all of that works out. Um, Rachel, across from that is a uh, in the Sunday Independence is a piece about how the cost of living is only going one way, and that of course is exacerbated to a large extent by what's going on. Um, but there is an interesting observation in, in Wayne O'Connor's piece about this idea of summer hunger about the whole question mark of, of school meals, which are not usually uh, continued um, throughout the mm. summer period and what that means for children who are completely dependent on those. Mm. That's actually something that you are doing some work on at the moment. Tell us more. It is, yes. So the piece focuses, it's underpinned by some kind of rigorous academic research from uh, the ESRI and SVP, but it talks about um, food poverty and food inflation. So as we know, inflation is at a you know 40-year high. Um, and when the CSO measures inflation, they look at goods and services. And one of those things are uh, the issue of food and the cost of food increases that are happening currently hit lower income families disproportionately. Um, One of the projects that RSM is working on is we've been commissioned by the Department of Social Welfare to evaluate the school meals programme that exists in Ireland. Uh, When when you say evaluate, does it just mean to like, could it be run better? Should it be expanded? Is all of that on the table? So we'd ask questions around what is working for whom in what contexts and why. Uh, So currently the school meals programme exists largely for DESH schools. So that's the categorisation and there are... That's the the designated disadvantaged schools. Indeed. And there's different permutations of meals that each school can have. So uh, some schools have free breakfasts for kids. Some schools have cold meals and they will have food at homework club. But in the last couple of years, the government has rolled out a hot meals option for schools and there's set rates per child per day. So each child gets a snack that's worth 60 cents. A cold meal is worth one euro 90 and a hot meal is worth two euro 90. So as part of our evaluation, we're talking to school principals around the country. We're talking to the suppliers of school meals, bringing them into the conversation for the first time, Mm. other key stakeholders. But most importantly, we're collecting stories from children themselves for the very first times 
Uh, I know that that's obviously a work in progress, but is there general satisfaction with that? Or have you picked up on, on the idea that children who are in receipt of these meals during term time worried about having empty tummies when it comes to school holidays? They do talk about holiday hunger is a phrase that they use and the fact that they rely so much on school meals, those free school meals. If you think about uh, an average family's budget, once three free meals are provided in school, for example. They are things that a family doesn't have to budget about or doesn't have to worry about. But once mm. holidays kicked in, they're the sorts of things that, you know, uh, uh, somebody does have to think yeah. about going forward. So it's, it is a real concern. Yeah. And as Wayne O'Connor observes in, in that piece today, uh, Philip Ryan, then this this idea of families which or otherwise don't have to worry about some of the meals for their school children comes at a time when they're already then trying to worry about the back to school costs, uh, well, that, which, yeah. which is a particularly expensive time of year anyway. Which are substantial when uniforms, books, bags, bags, all sorts of the various things you need to, to go back to school. And I just wonder as well, those the, the prices that you that, that, that you set out there, mm. like two ninety for a hot meal, I'm sure inflation is going to cause issues mm. with that as well. And the people providing yeah, these meals yeah, are going yeah. to... Are they going to be able to give the same service that they've always given? I mean, this article in the paper talks about all the things that have the basic prices that have just gone up in the last few months, you know, bread, milk, eggs, cheese, everything rising by about 10 percent. So, you know, if you're a supplier delivering 20,000 meals per day to schools, for example, the cost of just bread and chicken in a roll, you know, that's Mm. going up and up the cost of fuel to deliver the foods to school. That's all increasing. Um, so it's it's quite a difficult time. Which I suppose means then that um, I, I don't know what the, exactly the terms of reference are, but if the government was looking at extending this beyond just the, the DESH, the designated disadvantaged mm. schools and wanted to bring it to mm. all primary schools, for example, you'd be talking about expanding it to the guts of half a million uh, young people, the cost of which would be pretty significant, not to mention the logistics. But if Possibly. the cost would be yeah. significant at present costs, yeah. then, so, then insert the inflation into it as well. Yeah, I don't want to preclude any conclusions at this sure. point, but we would model up some of those things. The other thing to think about is the Irish government is signing up to the notion of the EU Child Guarantee Scheme, which uh, is an initiative from the EU, which talks one of the elements. It's like a bill of rights for children, essentially, and it talks about the fact that every child in the EU should be entitled to one hot meal per day. Um, and in many cases, schools are the best place to provide that. Mm. The dilemma is, should it be something that is applicable to all children? Because we do know that there are kids in DESH schools who go hungry. You know, uh, it's yeah. the unit of analysis is the school rather than the individual child here. Or should it be something that we roll out on a universal basis? A lot of the discussion around cost of living and the budget and everything is about focusing targeted policies on those most in need. Mm. Um, but it's at the individual child level, it's very difficult to establish which child is actually in need. Sure. Uh, just so I can make a mental note to come back to it whenever all of that is wrapped up, do you have yeah. a particular deadline to report all that back on? Mikey, do you want to we, talk about what you found? Uh, we'll be deli- RSM will be delivering the report to the Minister Heather Humphreys and the Department of Social Protection in October. So okay. I'd love an invitation yeah, no, back. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make a note. We'll certainly Thank will. You. Um, well, this was going to lead on to now, The Minister might sit on it for months. <laughs> <a bit. laughs> she, she might do, but I suppose when, when the government is talking about yeah. uh, the budget and all of the rows that are going to go yeah. into the budget and the fact that they won't consider budgetary <laughs> issues before the budget, uh, then it could be an interesting time to do it all. Um, we were discussing during the ad break how uh, fatiguing it is to, uh, as a member of the political media core uh, to already be looking at budget coverage when it is four months to budget day. Um, but in fairness, the government has some pretty big decisions already on its hands because we know that they, uh, the revised government pay talks are now going to start. Michael McGrath says that they're going to really gather speed in the next two weeks. That's going to take a chunk out of whatever money the government had in October's budget. But now they're going to be under pressure to increase their spending in pretty much every department to keep track of inflation 
and Fine Gael wants to have some meaningful tax cuts to workers as well which means Philip Ryan that there's an awful lot of people competing for relatively little pie Yeah well we, we don't know what the pie is just yet and um, the summary economic statement I think is due this month which will set the parameters of how much money Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath have to spend but yeah look the papers you're, are You're, you're going to let that sentence go by without saying the words fiscal space? Yeah, yeah. I think I okay, will right, <laughs> But you can see right across all the papers like we're talking about uh, major rows and cabinet divisions and the open salvo of the, the budget conflicts and it, it, various different people positioning themselves uh, there's this ongoing thing that's been since the confidence and supply uh, arrangement the difference the only real difference you can kind of see potentially between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael mm. is that this Fianna Gael emphasis on tax cuts which they have um, put out and this idea that they don't want uh, uh, like we were talking about earlier targeted uh, cuts they want more universal um measures and policies which will impact on their people who get up early in the morning in Middle Ireland or whatever you want to call them. Mm. And then Fianna Fáil have been have found themselves in this kind of quagmire where they're you can't go out and say you don't want to be they don't want to be against that but they they can they realize that the green party has very much got its image out there and knows what it wants Fina Gale is very good at doing it too and they're kind of stuck in the middle with no real um identity as such and and you can see that we've got a uh, uh, Willie O'D he's both in the, the the Sunday Independent and the Mail on Sunday and the Mail on Sunday also have the likes of uh, Jim O'Callaghan and Barry Cowan and John McGuinness um, putting pressure on the Taoiseach to, to sit down and as a party to, to decide what it is that they want and to, to, to grasp the, the, yeah. the cost of living crisis. Which, which, which is never too late to be doing but if, if they're already in a bit of an existential row over what is going to be in the mm. budget if you're only getting to decide on the cusp of the summer recess what it is that you stand for you've probably missed an awful lot of time already. Probably about 10 years too late was it? <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it, it is that it, that is a it, huge problem for Fianna Fáil and you can see that there's a bit of a rearguard action going on now mm. because Fine Gael have spent probably the last two months if not longer coming out setting out their budget priorities we've heard it it's about um, tax cut it's about cutting student fees it's about um, reducing transport costs reducing hospital costs and they're very much trying to take ownership of that very very Mm. very early for for any type of budget um, yeah. pronouncements. Um, I think it's all about sorry, expectation Rachel, management, I think. And the, already. The, yeah, four, already. Four yeah, and it's the, for me, it's the, you know, one-off um, measures that are about firefighting aren't really going to tackle this problem long term. You know, so Pascal Donoghue has, has talked about that expectation management, but it's about there's lots of things that they're not going to be able to do. And I think it's important to reflect on those things, you know. So is it is it a decision between cost cutting measures that ease the kind of the spiralling costs of living in mm. the country? Or do they have to take more, like more of a generational approach to thinking about, you know, there's a branch of economics that thinks, um, you know, in order to counteract this sort of problem, what the government should be doing is increasing its, you know, foreign investments, for example, because we know things like the cost of borrowing are going to spiral. So it's about getting uh, generating income so that uh, in the future we can not just kind of chase measure after measure yeah. that we can think a long term strategy for addressing these well, issues going forward. Well the biggest issue here is the over reliance on corporation tax and there's stuff in the, the papers. day fund in the business yeah. Policy, yeah, yeah. The, um, Ten companies I think. Yeah. yeah like about, about half of yeah. all corporate tax income in Ireland. Exactly. Ten yeah. companies alone. And yeah. those type of companies tech companies service companies that 
given I think it is it uh, whose piece was it Colin McCarthy's piece today is talking about how a lot of those companies they move like they they yeah. they, they they look for the cheapest place to, to work yeah. and, and if it and of course it doesn't mean as people might imagine having to to shut down different premises and shipping out thousands of jobs because now mm. if it's just a case of where is your headquarters that can sort of be done That's by brass plate piece exactly, of paper stuff yeah. it doesn't really matter where you're where you're, you're sitting on your laptop in your front bedroom yeah. Working for the company. Well, could, could be your could be your living room either. Mm. Um, but like, I'm just uh, as a, a recent return to our shores who hasn't had to put up with the minutiae of, of, of budget coverage for for previous times. Rachel, um, I, I'm kind of just take up that. Do you think whether when it's expectations management is that because the government re- realizes that if inflation is at eight percent that you can't increase state spending in every area by eight percent which means in real term your money is going to go less farther which means it's going to feel like a cut you're trying to do that and put money back in people's pockets and do the necessary stuff for climate ambitions and everything else that they they know that this is going to be a hard sell and that's why they have to manage expectations four months out exactly you've got to take a systematic approach i.e looking at the whole system in order to reduce the costs for ordinary members of the public going forward so whether it's childcare, whether it's healthcare whether it's transport whether it's university fees all of that it has to be done in the round to reduce that going um, forward You said that um, you know, there's, there's some things citing Pascal's on who that there's some things the government can't fix I wonder whether Covid has changed people's outlooks or their acceptance of government saying that there's stuff that they can't do because in the last two and a half years we've seen governments do stuff that we never thought any Western liberal democratic government was ever going to have to do, but they've done it. They, they've made orders clamping down on civil liberties. They've opened the checkbook. They've borrowed till kingdom come to make stuff happen in ways they never thought they would. And people have now become used to governments intervening a bit, throwing their weight around, uh, making stuff happen for the benefit of everyone. I think that, that might be a bit of a political issue now. If people think that governments really ought to intervene to help cut, cut the cost of petrol even if they can't mm. affect the price on world markets that people just don't accept that the government the most powerful entity in the country is incapable of doing stuff I think Covid's a really good example and how quickly we got vaccines up and running you know in the olden days it could take years before um, a vaccine would go through clinical trials and I see a really good parallel in um Uh, the housing space whereby I read lots of articles that talk about the notion of, you know, ex-housing development won't enter the planning process till 2027. You know, so there's something about in COVID, we expedited bureaucracy and policy processes in order to achieve an outcome that was necessary very, very quickly. Mm. So there are ways governments can intervene. Uh, And it's about kind of evaluating what what are the processes, what are the barriers and the challenges, what can we overcome in order to achieve that outcome Mm. uh, quicker. But what I mean is that if people think, you know, COVID might be a once in a century Mm. thing, pandemics Mm. don't come along Mm. all that often. But nor does inflation like this. This is like mm. a, a, a once in mm. a generation, at least, uh, cost of living crisis. Mm. And they just don't understand why a government mm. wouldn't have a midterm mm. budget to slash taxes to try and put money mm. back in people's pockets. Mm. They don't understand why a government would be so standoffish about yeah. that. I wonder, do people think that the government's kind of acting on the, the seat of its pants almost, so to speak? You know, pre post-COVID, everybody was thinking the decade that life was most going to be like was the 1920s, you know, roaring, you know, success and everything. Mm. But actually, we're back in the 1970s, I think, when it comes to inflation (laughs) now. It's roaring 20s, but a different kind of roaring. Yeah. Yeah. I'll show Hannon actually kind of addresses that thing in in her column today when she's talking about comments that Heather Humphreys discussed during the week about saying, you know, warning people there's no magic money tree um, that the government can just rely on. But 
sometimes there just is and there was during COVID there was during the banking crisis when we needed money uh, the, the financial institutions turned to what they like to call quantitative easing which is yeah, printing loads of money yeah. here it is spend mm. away lads so it, it it does seem and you can understand why the public can be a little bit confused at times that well in this circumstances there was loads of money and, and like the figures that were thrown around during the, after the crash and, and obviously we had to deal with austerity mm. and that's mm. in, but around COVID it's just crazy money so and when we're in these circumstances and we're all going to be soon paying 250 for a litre of petrol and yeah. 80 quid for a sliced pan mm. like where like what do you do about it yeah um, not quite 80 quid but you can understand the hyperbole given the circumstances <laughs> uh, we have about two minutes left before I have to let you go and just to tee us up for, for Catherine Murphy who's going to be with us after 12 o'clock Philip there is an interesting piece uh, again it's today's Sunday Independent Hugh O'Connell a fascinating kind of deep dive on um, the, the fate of the Social Democrats which as it happens coincides with that poll in the Sunday Times showing that the party support is now at 0%. Now, that's margin of error stuff, maybe something of a rogue poll, but Hugh has done an interesting dive into something of a malaise in the party. Yeah, it's really interesting piece and, and one of the, th- the things that jumps out is the actual membership. Like, this is a party that you would have thought that is on the rise. They uh, secured uh, seven seats in the Dáil in the last election. They're doing really well. They're, they're always prominent on issues. You know, yep. they're, they're out there, they're on your show, they're on all the other shows. They, 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 they get it. They seem to be good at politics. But at the same time, they've had to delete. They they did an audit of their membership, and it went from two thousand down to just one. And then they they had a conference there yesterday, and mm. I didn't make it myself. But it, it seems that it, it wasn't jam packed event by by any regards. Mm. And it clashed and, and with the match as well. Unfortunately, well, that's there was, all, yeah. <laughs> it was the first <laughs> time televised. Was, I think. Yeah. Yeah. first time in an awful long time that yeah. an Ireland yeah. match felt like it's worth televising yeah. as well. Yeah. So there you go. Um, but it's like that, they, they just kind of the, the headline, by the way, is, is how many social democrats does it take to lead a party? Is there an argument that actually having two leaders is now more of a hindrance than a help? I don't know that that's the problem they have. Uh, it seems that it's just with, with Irish politics, and this has been the case for a little while. It's just such a crowded field. Everybody, there's no real distinction between any of the parties. People for profit is probably the only one that actually stands out as a truly left-wing, you know, Trotskyite party. And then you have all these various mm. social democrat parties, including, you know, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, Labour, mm. social yeah. democrats, which they're not really all that different. And I I, know. and I can see the potential issue coming here for social democrats as well. When you see the type of people you would have thought that would be getting into are very much into the into the social side of it um, and the social policies. Mm. And you can see that the two party leaders are reluctant really to, to get into the the trans debate which, yeah. is, which is a big thing well, with Pride uh, Week approaching d- don't know if I want to kick that one off with Catherine Murphy when I have her in a couple of minutes time but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes um, we're completely out of time this hour thank you very much for coming into me this Sunday morning Philip Ryan who's the group political editor at the Irish and Sunday Independent and Rachel Iredale consulting director with RSM Ireland thank you very much we'll certainly have you back about school meals and other things in coming years On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.